Welcome to the Women in Government podcast, a way for people to come together and discuss important issues and policies of the day. To get the conversation started, here is Women in Government Executive Director Lucy Getman. There's a nationwide public health emergency, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds that more than 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Increasingly, people are using illegal heroin and synthetic drugs, while the improper use of prescription opioids has been relatively flat in recent years. The national economic burden of this crisis is more than $500 billion annually, especially when considering the value of lost lives. The impact of the epidemic varies from state to state, leading some lawmakers to propose taxing prescription opioids. Although these drug bills are most often drafted to punish opioid makers, there are some side effects affecting cancer patients and survivor treatment and pain options. Hello, I'm Women in Government Executive Director Lucy Getman, and thank you for listening to our podcast. The statistics are alarming. 2.1 million people had an opioid use disorder between 2016 and 2017, and Americans have a higher risk of dying from an opioid overdose than dying in a vehicle crash. Here to talk about the impact of the opioid epidemic on the states and potential policy solutions are Alex Brill, Chief Economic Officer of Matrix Global Advisors. He's author of the report, State Opioid Taxes, Economic and Health Policy Implications, which was released earlier this year. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me on. I'd also like to welcome Director of Government Relations of the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, Mark Himovitz. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Thanks for covering this important issue. And finally, I'd like to thank everyone who's listening and remind you to like or share our conversation. You can also email us by visiting womenindovernment.org. At last count in 2018, 470 pieces of state legislation were drafted regarding pain management and opioid issues. States have seen a five-fold jump in such proposals over a three-year span. So, Alex, my first question is to you. You did a deep dive into the economics of the crisis itself over the past year. Can you tell us some of the major costs associated with the opioid epidemic? I'd be glad to. Economists who study this epidemic, and quite frankly, other epidemics that also plague our country, look at the associated costs through a variety of channels. Broadly speaking, there are the mortality and the non-mortality-related costs. And this latter group can be further subdivided to think about the costs such as lost wages, additional health care costs, particularly things like emergency room visits, and the third category in this group that we considered and others have considered are the criminal justice costs, burdens on the courts and the prison systems associated with a crisis such as this one. And so the first broad category, the mortality cost, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a strange concept, I think, for a lot of people to try to assign a dollar value to the loss of life. But it's also an important concept. Economists call this the statistical value of life. And it helps policymakers in public health and in other areas evaluate and compare both different types of crises that we face and the necessity and gain from addressing these burdens. The costs, when we think about the opioid crisis, nearly 50,000 people died in 2017 
from an opioid-related death, and this part of the total cost is by far the largest share. That's an enormous number by itself. It's a six-fold increase in deaths related to opioids since 1999. That's the 2017 number. We're still waiting on the latest data from the CDC for 2018. There's some indications that things might not be quite as bad, but we don't know those numbers yet. So that's the framework from which people think about the costs associated with the opioid epidemic. When you want to think specifically about the numbers, there was a study that was released last year, one that I've based some of my research on from the White House Council of Economic Advisors. They looked at the cost of the opioid epidemic and totaled it to be $504 billion in 2015. And they broke down those costs broadly into two buckets, the two that I described earlier. It's about $430 billion in mortality-related costs and over $70 billion in costs related to productivity, which means lost wages, health care, and criminal justice-related costs. Thank you, Alex. It's no wonder, then, that states are working really hard to get their hands around this opioid crisis. And in fact, as of October 2018, at least 33 states have enacted legislation related to opioid prescription limits. One state in particular, New York, became the first state to place an excise tax on opioids sold to or within a state. We'll talk about New York State a little bit more later. But first, Alex, can you tell us exactly how an excise tax works? Well, so we have a lot of experience in our economy with excise taxes. Generally, we have them on gasoline. We have them on cigarettes. You mentioned New York. That was the first state to pursue an opioid-related tax. Now we have three states in total that have such taxes, Delaware and Minnesota being the other two. In each instance, in each state, the taxes are structured slightly differently. But in general terms, I would say that an excise tax of this type is something that's going to require either the manufacturers or the distributors who are moving these products through or into a state. Those entities get assessed a tax based on some measure of the amount of opioids that they're selling. Sometimes it's in, some have considered these taxes on a per-dose basis. More often, it's what's called morphine milligram equivalents. So higher dose prescriptions would be associated with a higher tax. Some states have developed a policy where the state will determine what the total tax is going to be paid by all the manufacturers, and then they just assign each distributor or manufacturer a portion of that bill based on the share of prescriptions that they're selling into a state. Other states have thought about this in a more conventional or traditional excise tax, like $1 per prescription, something that's a little bit easier to relate to. In some other states, Minnesota, for example, they achieve their tax through what they refer to as a license fee. And so these are large costs paid by each stakeholder in the distribution network, and it adds up to an overall effective tax on the prescriptions that are being sold in that state. Thank you, Alex. So what are some of the economic and health policy implications of this kind of tax, and why might a state tax on prescription opioids have unintended consequences? The economics of an opioid tax is in many regards like the economics of any excise tax, like a cigarette excise tax or something else. It's going to eventually result in 
higher prices for the products that are facing the tax. But it's unique in the sense that unlike, say, a cigarette tax or a soda tax or a gas tax, the market for, for prescription drugs involves, as we all know, insurance companies, sometimes public insurers like Medicaid and Medicare, and oftentimes private insurers. And these insurance companies are often the payer for a prescription drug that a patient takes. So in a simple example, if a prescription is $100, your copay at the pharmacy counter may be $20. If a tax is imposed on that drug and the price goes from 100 to $105, your copay is likely going to be the same $20 as it was before, but the insurance company will pay more for that drug. That's not to say that the insurance company will bear the ultimate burden here. No, in fact, what they will do is pass that additional cost on in the form of higher insurance premiums. That's the long-run effect. So once the tax is understood by the players in the market have had a chance to adjust their prices, what we should anticipate is that the opioid tax will be passed forward through the system and result in higher insurance premiums. That means higher costs for those who are using opioids and higher costs for those who are not using opioids. In the short run, the dynamics could be different. These costs are more likely to fall on the drug manufacturers themselves. They can't necessarily immediately raise their prices until they have an opportunity to negotiate their contracts with the payers. And so that in the short term, we could see uh, quite a pinch on the manufacturers. In the longer term, we should expect this burden to fall on the payers of insurance. That's on the economic side. And I'd also note that that's a sort of stylized example, right? So not everyone has insurance and not everyone's insurance means that they pay only $20 for a copay for prescription drugs. Sometimes people do pay the full cost of a prescription at the pharmacy counter. And so there the economics are a little bit different, but I would note that when the price goes up for that drug, one of the potential unintended consequences is that the cost of alternatives to prescription opioids, alternatives that could be much more serious and much more dangerous become more attractive. In other words, what I'm saying is the trade-off between a prescription opioid, which can sometimes be misused and certainly has been misused, compared to heroin or fentanyl is a trade-off that we have to worry a lot about. And so raising the cost of prescription opioids for those who are suffering from an addiction does raise the risk that they'll be pushed towards alternatives. Alex, thanks for giving us an overview of some of the consequences of state opioid taxation, and your response leads us into a conversation about the impact on individuals, on patients, and folks who have a need for pain relief. So, Mark Kimovitz, since many cancer patients and survivors need pain treatment to live and to complete even the most basic day-to-day tasks, what is the impact of these bills and the consequences to patients and individuals that need care? Thanks, Lucy. And there are certainly consequences. You know, every day we see the dangers of prescription painkillers and their misuse in the headlines, but far less often do we see or hear about the other side of the story, and that's the individual patients who are suffering from pain and are in need of these medications to maintain some quality of life as much as possible. But across the nation, as lawmakers try to deal with the crisis of abuse and diversion, 
we've seen unintended consequences of some policy decisions. Alex mentioned the taxes, but in addition, there's some other examples include placing limitations on the number of pills for a prescription a cancer patient can have, not just during treatment, but well after they've beat the disease and are still suffering from pain. Oftentimes, that part of the cancer journey is forgotten. Other requirements are that prescribers be notified as to what percentile they fall in in their specialty. So in some states, they've passed policies where the overseeing board will send letters to prescribers saying you're in the top 50% of prescribers of opioids within your uh, specialty. Well, even if there's no punishment that's assigned to those prescribers, it still has a chilling effect. A prescriber doesn't want to get a letter from their board of registration that tells them that they're in the top whatever percentile. You know, for an oncologist, they're going to be very high up in rates of prescribing of opioids because it's a very effective drug to help cancer patients deal with their pain. So even if there's not this penalty associated with, doctors are going to say, well, geez, I don't want to get this letter, so I'm going to prescribe a different drug that's not going to get me this letter, even if it's not in the best interest of the patients. Now, doctors take an oath and they don't want to do that, but oftentimes these policies cause these unintended consequences. And it's not just bad policies that we've seen that has an impact on how pain medications are treated and prescribed. The words associated with pain management, narcotics, addiction, painkillers, they're strong and scary and carry stigmas. Patients and families and even practitioners often have misperceptions and are confused about addiction and dependence and tolerance. And this contributes to patient and family fears about using pain medications as well as physicians' reluctance to prescribe them. I had a former colleague at the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, ACS-CAN for short, and that colleague's main policy issue portfolio at ACS-CAN was this very issue, barriers to adequate pain management. Now, she's a nationally known expert in her field. She's traveled to several states on occasion to speak and join colleagues at some legislative meetings. She lost her brother to brain cancer a few years back, and when his treatment options were exhausted, he was told he had one or two months to live, and they were going to focus on trying to just manage his pain in his final days. His doctor gave him a prescription for opioids, but he refused to take them. He told his sister, whose job was to work on these issues, he told his sister he was worried about getting addicted to the opioids. Now, he had one to two months left to live, and he was worried about getting addicted because the stigma and the fear that's attached to the way we talk about these issues can be just as much of a barrier as the policies and the unintended consequences that are passed. Well, Mark, you very eloquently described the consequences of the barriers that stand in the way for patients who legitimately need pain relief. And we see that reflected in the data. Nearly one half of cancer patients surveyed and more than one half of those with other serious illnesses said their doctor indicated treatment options for their pain were limited by some sort of law, guideline, or insurance coverage last year. With that in mind, Mark, how are patients and survivors' quality of life affected by such limitations? People often think of a cancer patient as someone who is in the hospital the whole time and in treatment, and that's 
not always the case. And with the medical advancements and the prescription drug advancements and chemotherapy advancements we've made over the years, oftentimes patients can go on with full function of their life or partial, and sometimes they can still go to work, they can take care of their family. So being able to manage the symptoms of their disease is very important. Cancer patients and others suffering from pain are already compromised. They shouldn't have to suffer from under-treatment or untreated, for that matter, pain. They shouldn't have to fight to have their pain addressed. They have enough barriers in front of them, and policy barriers just add to their struggles so they can be able to continue and go on with their life while they're being treated and then after their treatments while they still may be suffering from pain. Opioids are generally recognized as a mainstay of treatment and are oftentimes the most effective medications for moderate to severe cancer pain. Oftentimes, these medicines are the only ones that can bring pain relief to cancer patients and survivors so they can complete their treatments, continue to work, and enjoy the company of family and friends. But as we've seen, pain medications, opioids in particular, do have a potential for abuse. So this is the balance that lawmakers need to strike and work to strike as they develop policies and make sure that their policies aren't having unintended consequences. Thank you, Mark. Nearly 60% of cancer patients in active treatment and nearly 30% of those who have completed treatment experience pain. One key takeaway from Alex's report is that most people misusing prescription painkillers do not get them from their doctors, leading some to say that state opioid taxes offer an appeal to go after the bad guys while leaving patients and survivors struggling to safely access their pain medication. Alex, I have a twofold question for you. First, what are the sources of misused prescription painkillers? And then, can you tell us what could happen to the average American if their state passed an opioid tax? Well, the short answer to your first question is one-third, one-third, one-third. And what that means is when survey work that's identified the sources of misused prescription opioids concludes that roughly speaking about one-third of those prescriptions come directly from the doctor to the patient who's misusing the drug. About one-third of the prescription pills are obtained free of charge from a friend or a relative to that person. And roughly one-third of the prescriptions fall into a sort of an other category. And what this means is generally bought or stolen from someone else who's obtained that prescription either legally or illegally. To your second question about what would happen to an average American, as we discussed, I guess, earlier on, we should expect that in the long run that the burden of these taxes will fall through the insurance system as higher insurance premiums. What this means is that it's not those who are suffering from opioid addiction and misuse that are going to be paying more. It's everyone who's going to be paying more. And that includes those who are using prescription opioids appropriately or in need of access to these medicines. And it actually also includes those who aren't using opioids at all who will pay more for their health insurance as a result of these taxes. Mark, it's very clear that there are unintended consequences from legislation among and between the different states. 
and that we've begun to see all types of setbacks. Every year, the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network releases the How Do You Measure Up Review. The report analyzes how states are doing when it comes to cancer prevention policy and its benchmarks. So, Mark, how are the states doing when it comes to cancer patients and survivors accessing opioid pain medication, and what are a few of the reasons behind the setbacks? Well, I'd say our states are doing just okay. Our annual How Do You Measure Up report rates states on their policies in several different areas, and one of those areas is pain policies. And we use a red, yellow, green scale, so obviously green being the best and red, the states are failing. So only six states have a green rating in this current year's report. So that means they have mostly the right policies in place to ensure that balanced approach that patients have appropriate access to the pain meds they need to manage their pain while also policies trying to deal with diversion and abuse. Seven states put major barriers in place and the rest 37 states are somewhere in between. And so obviously our goal policy-wise is to get those seven states out of that red area and push a lot of those states that are in the middle up so they start adopting additional policies that will benefit cancer patients and others suffering from pain rather than putting barriers in place. But the report shows that even with all of the work that has been done, we still have a long way to go. The good news is that We know what policies need to be put in place, so it's just a matter of educating and, you know, discussions like this really help in educating the public, but hopefully also policymakers so they can take this into account as they're developing new policies. So far in the discussion, we've talked about that policies limiting the supply of opioids are leading to drug shortages. Uh, This is something we're seeing in the state of New York. On July 1st, an excise tax went into effect on opioids sold to or within the state. The plan was to have pharmaceutical companies pay the tax on opioids and use the funding to pay for treatment and recovery programs. However, there has been a ripple effect. Alex, you saw this coming. Can you explain the effect the tax is having on drug manufacturers and distributors? Broadly speaking, these entities, the manufacturers and the distributors, they're facing a broad set of threats associated to the opioids. There's the tax issue, which is the one that we've been discussing here. They're also facing massive litigation risks. And we've also mentioned a whole set of new regulations and restrictions at both the state level and the federal level. Now, I think that some of these new rules are good. I think there's been over-prescribing in this market, and it's had unintended consequences and caused significant costs on society. Obviously, it's the physicians that are writing the prescriptions. It's not the manufacturers. They're only manufacturing the products. But it is the case, I think, that many of the changes we've seen on the regulatory side are reducing the total volume of opioids. And I think that from a macro perspective, that's a good thing and that we should welcome this trend. Now, I'd also say the point that Mark's made earlier is critically important. While I believe it's good that the overall volumes are on decline because I think there has been overprescribing, we need to be very careful that such trends as a result of new policies 
don't trap the patients who need these products to manage their pain appropriately, cancer patients or others who are suffering from chronic pain and are using these products as intended and appropriately and are not suffering the adverse consequences of opioid addiction. It's a balancing act for sure. It's one that I think that the tax policy is not wisely designed to help address. And as you alluded to in your question, you know, it is possible, particularly in the short run, that policies like a tax in a particular jurisdiction could cause certain players to exit those markets. And that could lead to shortages for certain products that are necessary and appropriate for certain patients in those jurisdictions. And that's definitely something that we need to watch out for and guard against. Some have said that what is happening in New York State could happen elsewhere. It's a sort of cautionary tale of sorts. So either or both of you are welcome to jump in on the next question. How does this type of tax work itself into the market and affect behavior? I'll just say very quickly, I think that there is a contagion effect across states, for one. You know, as you've mentioned, we started with New York. Now, as I noted earlier, we've got a tax like this on the books in three states. Other states got close to enacting a tax like this or had opioid taxes on their agenda. Iowa, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Vermont. So states from across the country have considered these policies. And in other states, these bills have also been introduced. So one aspect is that this can spread. States watch each other's behavior. And in fact, it could even spread to the federal level. Policymakers have talked not seriously, but have talked about this as a federal policy as well. And our concern at ACFCAN is that this will make its way to the patient, increasing the price. And Alex talked about this, you know, one way or another it's going to, whether it's directly to the patient or through increased health insurance costs, and that's a concern. And obviously, with other products, we know price goes up, consumption goes down, and we already have plenty of evidence, and Alex talked a little bit about this, that we already know patients will forego taking medications or they'll split their medications if the price goes up to something that they can't afford. So we know that price has an impact on consumption of medication. So at some point, this is going to have an impact on the patients who need the medications. So uh, some folks have been heard to say that the New York opioid tax was well-intentioned but ill-conceived. Where do you two see it going and how might it affect other states? Well, one thing I'll say is that we're actually on round two of the opioid tax in New York. The first time this was tried in New York, the law was tossed out by a federal judge. So it was certainly ill-conceived on technical grounds. It was ruled unconstitutional because it was deemed to interfere with interstate commerce. New York came back and revised the structure of the tax and reimposed it. And as I mentioned before, Minnesota and Delaware have done the same. I was actually in Delaware when the House chamber passed this bill, and it received a strong majority of support from Democrats and Republicans. And I think one reason is that for lawmakers, it can be a, a highly personal and it can be a very emotional issue. And it seems to me that sometimes the full economic consequences of these taxes are underappreciated. To be honest, I understand why it can be so emotional. It's an epidemic, and it's had horrible and devastating effects on scores of families, including the families of many lawmakers themselves. But it's important that when policies are developed to address these issues, we think about 
not only the emotional aspect of it, but we think, as we've been discussing today, what the unintended consequences can be as well. We've talked quite a bit about the recent happenings in New York State, but I'd like to bring the conversation back to the opioid epidemic itself, because we are experiencing one. The CDC finds that using opioids to treat acute pain can lead to long-term use, and the likelihood of this use increases based on the length of the initial prescription. As we know, state lawmakers have taken action and are drafting policies engaging health, criminal justice, human service, and other sectors. So, Mark, let's talk a little bit more about a balanced pain policy agenda. What would that look like? What are some of the things that states are currently doing well? And what other things can states be doing to improve their efforts? Sure. And I think before I go into some of the steps towards a balanced approach, you know, I do want to acknowledge that we at ACS can acknowledge that there is an epidemic out there. And we share the same concerns as lawmakers who are attempting to stem the opioid epidemic. We want to keep these drugs out of the wrong hands as well because it makes it more difficult for patients who need the medications to get them. So as we talked about, efforts to prevent diversion and abuse of opioids are very important and necessary, but those efforts should not interfere with medical practice and patient care. That should always come first. Practitioners must have their flexibility to respond to the treatment needs of individual patients, which will vary from patient to patient. Even patients with the same disease or condition, the treatment protocols will differ. ACS CAN supports policies at the federal, state, and local levels that take a balanced approach to addressing the opioid epidemic. Some of these policies include increasing access to and training in palliative care, which includes a focus on coordinated symptom management, including pain management for patients with cancer and other serious illnesses. You and Alex mentioned some prescribing limits on the number of pills and things like that. If those policies are put in place, it's imperative that cancer patients during treatment and after treatment and others suffering from chronic pain are exempted from those prescribing limits. We know that chronic pain and pain associated with a cancer illness doesn't have a finite period of time, so it's important that any dosage limits have an exemption. Also, another policy is creating and maintaining prescription monitoring programs that allow doctors and pharmacies to work together to curb misuse and abuse, not just within a state, but across state lines. This can help avoid doctor shopping, where someone's going from doctor to doctor to try to get additional prescriptions for the medications. Reporting should be in real time or as close to real time as possible. Also, research is important. We need to fund research to develop new evidence-based pain treatments, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological. We also need to provide education on pain management. That's been something that has been lacking for years. There was a thought that, well, pain comes with cancer treatment, so just suck it up. But we know that's not the case, and there are ways to treat pain and to manage pain We just need to educate providers on that. And then also ensuring that public and private insurance programs cover a range of evidence-based pain treatments. So obviously cover pain management medication, but also if there are other evidence-based ways to treat pain and a patient chooses to have that specific type of pain management treatment, we want to ensure that there's insurance coverage for that. And the last one I'll talk about is just creating effective drug take-back programs 
or methods that provide cancer patients and other patients and families with a way to dispose of unused medication. This can help get at one of the things Alex had mentioned about diversion and people getting pills from their family or friend's medicine cabinet that's not necessarily their own. If they're sitting around and someone has an addiction illness, then those pills look very attractive. So we need to have good programs in place to get rid of those medications. Thank you, Mark. Alex, do you have any additional options you'd like to share? Honestly, I think Mark laid out the spectrum of issues, and I think it's important just to remember that a spectrum is what's necessary here, that there's not one single of the items that Mark described is the solution, but it's it's being able to provide solutions to the, the pains that people suffer through different strategies, through education, through alternatives, to the other matters that were just described. And actually, that's a really good point you make. It is very important, and it's why doctors need to engage with their patients on a shared decision-making process as they're developing a treatment plan. So the doctor can provide information, the patient can take that information, ask questions, and have a decision made with the best information possible. All right, so we've talked quite a bit about the policy around prescription opioids. Let's talk a little bit about alternatives for practice. What alternatives exist for treatment and prevention, and how can they be funded without a state tax? Well, I can take the second half of that question on the financing. So, obviously, to the extent that treatment and prevention strategies are costs that will be borne by the state, then there has to be a way to find those dollars. And a portion of those costs will be borne by the state. A large portion will be financed other ways through private insurance and out-of-pocket costs, but some of the costs will fall to the state, and that presents a budgetary pressure on the state. My personal preference would be to prioritize those spending priorities, and if this epidemic is as it is, new and emerging, there may need to be sacrifices elsewhere in the budget to make room to accommodate those treatment and prevention programs. If lawmakers don't want to give up some other spending program and they want this to be an additive process, then they're going to need to find additional revenues to offset that cost. And what my advice would be to those state lawmakers is to pursue the types of broad-based simple and general tax policies that they pursue for financing general state activities. What that means is depending on the state, it might mean an adjustment to a broad-based sales tax or it might mean an adjustment to their income tax structures. Those are the two tax systems that states use to finance most of their spending activity. We don't need to think of every new activity as earning or deserving a particular specialized, narrowly conceived excise tax. But public finance tells us that we're much better off if we finance general revenues through general taxes. And what it comes down to is budgets are statements of priority. So our own personal budgets, we prioritize what's important to us. So shelter, food, health care, whatever that might be. With governments, it's the same thing. It's when they craft their annual budgets, it's a statement of lawmakers' priorities. If fighting the opioid crisis and ensuring that cancer patients and others suffering from serious illness is a priority, then they should find a way to fund those programs and fund them in ways that don't create policies that will hurt those same populations at the same time. Alex talked about an opioid tax and how the negative impacts it could have on patients. 
putting a funding mechanism in place for one thing that creates a whole new problem to another group of individuals is not the solution to a problem. Well, thanks to both of you, Alex Brill and Mark Henovitz. I think the last comment was very powerful in terms of how we express our policy priorities. And with that in mind, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to make some closing statements. And Alex, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for organizing this. For This is an important topic that more people need to hear about and, and think about and talk about. I'll close just very briefly. I want to emphasize, on one hand, I think that the tax approach for addressing this epidemic is a bad idea. It's going to do little to change behaviors in the directions that we hope they change, and it's going to result in costs on individuals who are completely unrelated to this epidemic entirely. But I also want to emphasize, really with equal force, that the epidemic is real and it's serious and that smart policy actions are necessary to combat it. Designing those policy options are tricky. They're harder to conceive, perhaps, than something sort of brute force like a tax policy. But that's the challenge for policymakers, to think about both how to treat those who are suffering from opioid addiction, as well as how to craft policies to make sure that these products are available for those who need them and not available for those who don't. Thank you, Alex. Mark, do you have any final thoughts? Sure. First, I'd like to thank you, Lucy, for focusing on this really important issue. And thanks to you, Alex, for sharing your great knowledge on it. It's been educational for me to listen to what you have to say as well. And to close out, I would really like to recognize one of my longtime colleagues at ACS CAN who passed away from cancer a couple of weeks ago. Dave Woodmanzi worked for ACS and ACS CAN for 30 years. And over the past several years, one of his major policy areas of focus was improving cancer patients' quality of life during treatment as well as after their treatment as well. And what that means is that with cancer patients, we don't just treat the cancer, but we treat the patient as well. Dave fought to pass policies across the country that ensure patients were receiving palliative care to manage their symptoms and side effects. At the same time, they were receiving curative treatment. And a big part of that is addressing pain suffered by those patients before, during, and after treatment. Dave worked really hard to ensure that policies passed, many that we discussed here today, did not have unintended consequences for cancer patients and others with serious illnesses that made it more difficult for them to get the pain relief they deserved. So in closing, I'll just say that my hope and prayer is that during his own cancer journey, Dave benefited from the policies he championed over the past 30 years and that the countless patients that Dave never met will continue to benefit from the work that he's done. So thank you again, Lucy, for focusing on this issue today. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for that powerful and poignant tribute to David Nancy. He's, he was a, a legend in the field. While we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, our starting point was that the opioid epidemic has a hold on our nation. There's not a corner of the country that hasn't been impacted, and policymakers are actively looking for solutions to counter its negative effects. As we know, some state lawmakers are proposing an excise tax on prescription opioids, and that has led to some unintended consequences. 
that clearly states are the leaders in this fight against a terrible crisis. And we need to be sure our efforts are reaching the right people and having the intended impact. We hope this conversation has shed some light on this issue. I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. And I'd also like to say thank you to all the listeners for taking the time to hear this important discussion. Please don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. And you can also email us by visiting womenindovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womenindovernment.org.